welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of the module called TALC, Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care, and is mainly about the chapter called Whose News Is It Anyway? Clinicians work very hard in the first part of the consultation to gather information and to work out their own understanding of the problem that the patient has brought to them. Listening skills are crucial to the effective gathering of information, and this is covered in detail in TALC, Skills for Effective Information Gathering. However, when starting to try and explain their findings and make a plan of care with the patient, some clinicians seem to abandon their listening skills and they resort to a much more lecturing kind of style. Here is my assessment and here is the treatment I have for you. Most of the time, it seems like a sort of business as usual approach with the mini lecture taking place of dialogue. On other occasions, clinicians become rather tense and paralysed because they think that what they're going to say is bad news and then they think they need to use some very special and difficult breaking bad news skills. Julian, I know that you often talk simply about breaking news skills rather than, say, breaking bad news skills. So could you tell me about your thinking there? Yeah, I mean, I always used to think of breaking bad news and how it was related to certain situations, the classical one being a new cancer diagnosis or a diagnosis of diabetes. I think it's really from talking to you a few years ago, the penny really dropped. And I suppose my reality really is that all news can be life-changing to patients or the converse is not as bad as we think it is. And what we, what I or what we perceive or judge to be bad news may in fact come as a relief to some patients. Some examples of news, so say somebody was given the diagnosis of quite a significant lumbar disc protrusion you might feel that's bad news to some patients, but a particular patient who's struggling with really terrible sciatica for months might see that as great news, that there's hope now I've got a diagnosis and there's a way forward. And equally, I think sometimes we see things as, as minor issues or a common issue, and they may have a devastating effect on a patient depending on how that news is transmitted. So maybe have somebody, you might get an ultrasound scan report back that shows a simple ovarian cyst and you think, well, that's fine. But to the patient who's got a strong family history of ovarian cancer, that might be you know, hugely distressing if it's not delivered with appropriate context. Thinking a lot about this, and I think there's something that happens when we have news to deliver. Often we'll have the result in advance. Maybe a blood test shows a new diagnosis. And we prepare by thinking about all the medical things that we need to do, the tasks we've got as a clinician in that, that encounter. That might be delivering the information, but then planning the management and the follow-up. And I see this quite a lot with the trainees that I've supervised. When they're preparing for exams, sometimes the consultation becomes a satisfaction of the exam rather than dealing with the patient. Say you've got to tell somebody they've got hypertension, it might become a diagnosing and telling somebody they've got hypertension station rather than really working with the patient. I suppose the message is so important to remember to stay with the patient and try not to have that kind of judgment that, that you know how the patient's going to take the news and how it should be delivered. Skills of explaining news should really be the same, whether it's a simple thing or a serious thing. And I suppose if we really practice our explaining skills, we can tell patients any kind of news. And the skills that are particularly useful to develop here are the ones that elicit the patient's response. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And you're so right that you almost develop your news giving skills with something relatively straightforward. And if you 
practice in every consultation, eliciting the patient's response, uh, giving them time to ask questions and so on, then it will be much easier when the news is perhaps more complicated or more difficult. And I'd like to pick up on this really crucial idea of getting the patient's response to information. And when we discussed chunking and checking as a key part of the explanation skill set, we did discuss this idea of dialogue and active listening being just as important in the second half of the consultation. And I'm wondering if you could comment on why that is so important. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really crucial that explanations are tailored to each person's needs. So as Julian said, there's a lot of focus on this when we're talking about breaking bad news, but it's equally as important, as Julian said, with any news. I think often clinicians are really skilled at seeking a patient's starting point, but then it's also equally important to gauge their response throughout any explanation. So how do we go about doing this? Well, we discussed picking up cues and clues. We've talked about that in various parts of our explanation skills. And during the first half of the consultation, uh, this is often done well and there's a lot of focus on it, but it remains essential during explanations also. So as we said, delivering a, a sort of mini lecture, that really leaves little time to gauge response. Delivering information in small chunks needs to be followed by really actually deliberately creating some space in the dialogue for patients to respond. In addition, if, if we then encourage questions by asking things like what questions or what do you make of this so far at intervals, then that's a way to gauge a response to the new information that you're delivering. So an example might be saying something along the lines of, you know, how do the these signs that your chest is normal fit with what you were saying earlier about your fear it could be pneumonia? So that's really actively seeking to hear what somebody's thinking, a particularly crucial part of an explanation. I mean, the idea of this is that they have a positive effect. And the effect of this can be that your explanations are more focused to what the patient really wants to know and about how it fits in with their knowledge, beliefs or in their life. And it avoids delivering unnecessary information. So this patient-focused explanation results in less repetition in the consultation, which is clearly more efficient. But also I think that often people won't end up coming back because often if their actual fears are not addressed in that consultation on that day, then they go away and consider that and actually they may well want to come back and discuss that further. That's really interesting and I think being responsive to the patient and what's necessary actually can save time in the long run as you say mm. because it's really focused around that individual who's in front of you not just a generic patient with this problem. Jonathan I'm interested in this question of recall because Obviously, we're often giving quite a lot of different kinds of information. And I'm wondering how you've been thinking about how we can help patients to actually remember what we're telling them. To me, really, the, the main thing about helping patients to recall information is just to make sure that they are at the centre when we're sharing the information and sharing news with them. And certainly that's an attitude that's changed in me over recent years. I think I was very much of this part is my time to share the medical knowledge, whereas actually it's all the patient's time um, and we need to remember that. And I would say that really it starts before we share information. It's all about making sure it's the appropriate time to share information. So I've found that, you know, if a patient's particularly distressed or they'd like a relative there, actually we might just give 
the necessary information and arrange a follow-up to give more information when they've got time to think about any questions they might have or it might be a more appropriate time and that's something I'm developing confidence at recognising by asking patients but also recognising their cues as well. I think it's also important when we are sharing information to link it back to the patient and integrate it with what they already understand so their ideas, their concerns but also their illness framework as well so explain things in words that they use base it on their, their knowledge, their previous understanding. Something I, I like to do is link ex explanations of symptoms to what's going on to the diagnosis, but then also to follow that with why a particular treatment might help. So for instance, in angina, explaining, well, it's because the blood flow isn't sufficient to the heart because the arteries are narrowed. The medicine, GTM spray, helps to widen those so you don't get your symptoms, for example. And I think if we integrate information that we give into the patient's story, then it helps them to recall it better as well. And there are some specific skills we've mentioned that can help, so such as chunking and checking and staggering information that's given and signposting. So I'd like to talk about X, Y and Z. Let's start on talking about X, giving those pauses for patients to assimilate that information and process it. And then that might generate further questions. And we also talk about using diagrams and analogies, which can be really helpful with certain patients if they're maybe struggling with certain concepts. Again, something for them to, to reference back when they're discussing it further. And I think finally as well, one thing I am trying a lot more to do is to give patients with resources that they can use outside the consultation that they can share with relatives. Uh, so it might be information sheets or websites, and they can be very useful, but I wonder if patients, how the patients use them, particularly if they're just sort of handed to them. And things that I've been trying to do, which increase their, their usefulness is maybe directing patients to particular points of them. So, so this, this section is really important to you or is relevant to you. I might include a, a few summary sentences just to say this is what we've discussed today. And it's all things that they can link back to. It's just that personalised information and they feel that you've listened to them, you've understood and that this is about them and their condition. Thank you. That's really helpful. I, I like the idea of personalising things and highlighting the bits that are really important. And, you know, just pressing a leaflet into somebody's hands isn't going to be as effective, is it, as saying this bit is really important for you. This bit maybe doesn't apply to you for some for some reason. One of my colleagues is very keen on writing letters to patients. And if there's a complex situation or perhaps an end of life situation or, or a difficult decision that they've have to make, he'll often summarise what's been discussed and actually write a nice letter to the patient patient saying you know we've discussed this and this is where we're getting to and all these things go back to Julian's point about putting the patient right in the frame and you picked up on that as well Jonathan about having the actual person in front of you as being the key person in this and we've talked a bit about active listening in this second part of the consultation and patients do often give us hints or clues and cues when we're giving explanations have you got any thoughts about how best to respond to those? Yeah, we've mentioned cues a few times, haven't we? I mean, it is really key to be alert to this in the second part of the consultation. Often patients give us lots of clues around things that might be really relevant in the sort of management section of the consultation about things perhaps that they prefer. Often you'll hear patients, if they're given a chance, say things like, I'm not one for tablets or, you know, I like to help myself. Or there might be something as simple as a hesitation. Often people will say, well, okay. Or and there's a little brief pause or they'll say, well, that, yeah, that's fine, I suppose. These sort of little clues that maybe imply some doubts around something you're explaining. It might also be body language you notice. A patient sits back and folds their arms or they lean forward or a facial expression that you pick up on. It is important to follow up the cues that you notice, to acknowledge them, to say, you know, you look unsure, or to pick up on the statement about the tablets, you know, to say, and I hear you don't like tablets, tell me more. So then you can find, as you said, a little bit about their framework or their beliefs 
that's really going to help you understand what might be their thought processes around your explanation. I think often the fear around doing this is it feels like it takes time, it takes extra time, but, but often it saves time in the long term if you can address a worry or an expectation early on. I mean, there's no point in giving a whole load of information about a medication if, the, for example, the patient was really reticent about taking any tablets or has deep-seated doubts which haven't been addressed. Addressing those sort of cues and picking up on them and exploring them is really important. It makes sense that, in a sense, you could be penny wise and pound foolish there, couldn't you? That you know, if you do invest a bit of time getting that right, it's going to save you time in the long run, really. Yeah. Julian, I think it's very important to check whether patients have understood what we've been saying. And it's a common sort of thing that people say, oh, I want to check the patient's understanding or something like that. And that's obviously very important. But I've noticed that if you say, did you understand that? People just tend to say, oh, yes. And then it's only later that you realise they've missed something important like coming in for a blood test or something. Do you have any suggestions for effective ways to really check whether people have understood what's been happening? Yes, I think um, there was research done by Tuckett a few years back that showed that 90% of patients remembered key points in the visit and about 80% had good understanding if the information was presented properly. And I suppose there are specific techniques to help patients recall. So there's checking well, I'll come to checking in a second, but I think it's also important to emphasise certain points. And Jonathan mentioned signposting, and Anne's alluded to this. For instance, you can label information quite specifically. So you might, before delivering the information, you might say, this bit is really important. Well, this is actually the key issue. Or another example, you may say something like, there are three things we've got to do now. It's kind of setting up the scene and putting a framework on the message that you're delivering, which is trying to help the patient remember and, and will help recall. To add to that, you can link the information that you've elicited earlier on in the consultation. So an example of that might be a patient said earlier on they didn't want to go to hospital. So you may say, you mentioned preferring not to go to the hospital for this. Or you may say, if somebody had told you they were really worried about ovarian cancer, you may say, well, I've got the scan results and it shows a cyst, but it certainly shows no signs or concerns of cancer, which you mentioned earlier. So these labelling and linking techniques can help with memory recall. Then the checking stage would come and you might say something like, could you just go through what we've said here to make sure I've not missed anything? Or tell me what you make of the information so far. Another really useful technique there is I ask, what questions have you got? And the patients will often maybe pause, but then by asking what questions do you have, patients often will come up with a question or it might need a little bit more prompting. You could see that there's something there that they want to ask and, and just to check that they've got the, the understanding. Beyond that, so that might be checking that they've understood what we've talked about, but regarding plans, you may then say, can we go over what's going to happen next? Or does that sound like a plan? Can I just check you clear? Tell me what you're going to do now. The various different phrases that you can use to check at each stage that the information's been understood and the patient has a clear understanding of what's going to happen next or what they need to do next. I think that's really helpful because it goes back to that thing you were saying right at the beginning about this sort of staging of information and understanding how people respond to it. As if you've done that, a lot of this work of reinforcing and aiding recall will have been done already because you will have really kind of got to the bottom of what's bothering somebody or, or what they're able to engage in. And so this business of aiding recall and checking understanding isn't a one-off thing that you do at the end. It's something you're doing all the way through in the dialogue, really. So I think that makes a lot of sense. 
Finally, we called this chapter, Whose News Is It Anyway? And I've been reflecting on this in the context of the COVID pandemic at the moment, where a lot of clinicians are having to engage with a lot of bad news all the time, really. And I think, understandably, many clinicians find this continuous conveying of difficult subjects quite tiring and exhausting. And one of the things I was thinking was, is it helpful for us to think about that question as to whose news is it anyway? Because it's not mostly our news, is it? We don't cause the cancer. We don't make somebody get COVID. We don't make them so weak that they can't survive an illness. Nature creates some of the things that we're most worried about. I've been wondering whether thinking about whose news is it anyway is also a way for us to see ourselves as transmitting news rather than being the cause of the news or the cause of the problem. And I'm just wondering whether that might help with coping. So Jonathan, I'm wondering what you think about that idea about us just being the the bringer of the news, not the cause of the news, if you like. I think it's a really important point to make about news and sharing information with patients. Like you say, it can be really quite draining and tiring when if you feel that you're giving lots of maybe difficult news to patients, things that would traditionally be viewed as bad news maybe as well. Personally, I think that actually being reminded of that, we're the ones that I, like you say, sort of transmitting the news and the information is a really important role to help with our well-being. And that's certainly something that I've found is this idea as well as just that we're breaking news rather than sort of be good or bad news. And actually my role isn't there to interpret that news. It's not there to, to put some judgments or values on it. It's to provide the news and it's to provide support to the patients and, and their wider families as well. And yeah, I think that's a really important uh, distinction to make to help us to sort of manage maybe when we are in challenging situations with patients. Mm, thank you for that. I think you're kind of hinting at something there, which is for us to face the reality or, or indicate the reality. And then actually people have to respond and develop their own response to that reality, whatever it happens to be. And do you have any thoughts about that idea that we are not the news ourselves, we're the transmitters of the news, as it were? As you say, Apple, obviously there's a lot going on in the world at the moment regarding that. And you often hear clinicians who are sort of reporting their experiences saying that they do feel very worn out and responsible in some way, like you say, for actually death caused by a very serious illness. I think that when you're delivering news, you do feel a sense of responsibility. But that idea of the focus being the responsibility to know what a patient or a person's starting point is, and also your responsibility actually is to hear their responses and to be guided by those and to, as Julian said, keep the person at the focus, at the centre. And that shift of responsibility to do it well rather than to, you know, feel that the responsibility lies on you that this has occurred. I think one thing I've found is often when I've given news, frequently when it's been in inverted commas bad news, I've come away thinking it didn't go well. And I think when I reflect on that, it's because I never really thought to see how somebody responded to it because I felt sort of uncomfortable with it. So I think the lessons that I've learned through time is actually to seek those responses and to really try and understand what it means to people. And that can be uncomfortable, but I think it's more effective. And actually, I think if you do it effectively, you know your responsibilities have been met, actually, and that's what we're there for. Thank you. And that's very interesting thoughts about this whole process because it can be... Uh taking a toll if we don't approach it in a skillful way. And I think as I've become more experienced, 
in many ways, I found consulting less exhausting and less tiring, even when the reality is that one's dealing with serious disease or illness. And I think that's something about having the right skills to help people understand things, to help them respond to things and to support them through it, rather than just being burdened by the news oneself in a strange kind of way. Do you have any final thoughts, Julian? I think there is something special about the relationship you can have with patients. And just by going through the processes that we've been describing, I think you can end a consultation, even though you might not have given particularly great news for the patient to hear, or it certainly could be life-changing. You're kind of set off on the journey together. There's something about letting them ask the questions, giving them the space to ask the questions, making sure that that's been attended to in the consultation, stops it feeling like there's something missing. And I think that gives you that feeling that something's not been done. By having these kind of conversations and ending a consultation where questions have been answered and, and the opportunity to ask further questions is there as well. And there's a, a clear plan that takes a lot of the drain, certainly off how I feel at the end of a consultation. Thank you for that. I think that's very, very interesting. And I really love that emphasis that you've placed there on the fact that there's a, a journey, a continuity that at whatever point a patient is at, either in their illness or in the diagnosis or in the information that you're working with, this is a point in time along a journey that you're taking together and not just sort of like a cricket ball that you throw at their head and say, oh, that wasn't very nice, was it? I'm off now. And I think that also is a way to mitigate some of that stress because what you're saying is this is the reality we're facing. Let's see what we can do and let's use our skills uh, as we go along. And that's not expecting to fix everything immediately or not expecting to make things okay. Okay, when they're not okay, if somebody's had some important news, life-changing news or serious news or unexpected news even, you can't just make that fine. It's, it's, you, you can't explain it away, however skilled you are. The fact is that thing has happened. And yet that relationship that you have, that continuity and that journey is going to be what carries everybody through. So I really like that idea. Thank you for that. There's a lot of other skills involved in explaining effectively, and these are covered in detail in other aspects of the TALC module, Skills for Effective Explanations. And it includes chapters like Can Words Really Be Healing in Their Own Right, Chunking and Checking, and How Not to Dread Those Bad News Conversations. So we do cover specific bad news as well. Thank you, everyone. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.